want to invite us to take uh, to turn to Psalm 16 because this is actually a psalm that's going to be quoted twice for us, both by Peter and by Paul, at the beginning of their public ministries and their sermons that they're preaching. And so it seems appropriate, especially after the song that we just sung, uh, and frankly, the, the last couple of sermons I've done dealing with resurrection, because Psalm 16 is at its heart a resurrection psalm. And we'll see that as we go through here, because... And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind, because as we're going to go through this, we're going to see David talking about the godly life that he's living and the hope that he has. But in the back of our mind, always keeping in mind that Christ and what David is speaking of is actually prophetic in what Christ will accomplish. And it's because of Christ that we can have this hope that David is going to talk about and that drives him in his godly life. And so I just want us to keep that in the back of our mind. Before we get into Psalm 16 and read it, just want to read briefly for us Peter on Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is, uh, we, they've had that miraculous uh, sign of speaking in other languages, and Peter has now gotten the crowd's attention And he begins his sermon, and as he's going through, he quotes from Psalm 16. And so I'll just read that for us briefly so that we can set that in our mind as we begin to look at the passage. In verse 22, kind of catching in the middle of his sermon, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, and this is after having quoted this, Peter continues. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so here Peter is going to set the resurrection as that apex proof that Christianity is built upon, and Christ having fulfilled this. And so as we look at this psalm, I want to challenge us to look at this in the reflection of the resurrection. And as we reflect on that, that Christ rose from the grave, how that great event should not only drive our present life and godliness, but strengthen our hope in the future. And so with all that, we'll begin reading in Psalm 16. This is a mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. 
I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. God, as we look at this passage, I pray that you would speak to your people. Lord, we know that your word is powerful, it is effective. So Lord, I just pray that you would Use your word to impact us, that your son would be glorified as we reflect on his resurrection, his overcoming of death, and what that means for us, not only here and now, as we live our lives day to day, but in the future, the promises of eternal life and eternal glory with you. And so, Lord, we're so grateful for your word, we're grateful for your son, and we pray that you would impact us this morning through it. Ask us in Jesus' name. Amen. The way this psalm breaks out, really, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a logical flow. It's one of the great things about a psalm is, you know, usually when you're dealing with larger passages, you know, there's so much back that you have to fill in as you're preaching through a book of the Bible, and, you're, you know, the, the letters are generally built one upon another. The psalms can oftentimes be these self-contained units that, that allow us to really see in a small section, uh, you know, a complete thought. And so here we have David who's writing, and it breaks down essentially into what I have divided into three sections. We have, first of all, David's commitment to God. Then we see his contentment with God. And ultimately, we see his confidence But remember, as we're teaching through this, always, and we'll be bringing it back at the end, always we want to have in our mind that this is ultimately not about David. David is actually going to be speaking for Christ and about Christ. And so that David is looking forward to a time that Christ will come and be resurrected. We look back to what he has accomplished. And so that's all going to kind of be the lens through which we look at this passage. But first of all, I want to deal with David's commitment. You notice he starts off with a simple request, preserve me, O God. Followed immediately by, for you, in you, I take refuge. God, he is asking God to preserve him, to keep him, to, to protect him. But right after that, he's you know, you look at this and he's like, for in you I have taken refuge. David has already taken an action 
before he's really made a request. In many ways, we would look at this as David putting the cart before the horse, right? We would, we would expect him to say, preserve me, O God, and then I can take refuge in you. Show yourself to me, and then I can feel comfortable putting my, my, my commitment and putting my faith in you. But instead, David is saying, basically, I'm jumping off, catch me, right? I'm putting my refuge in you. I put my refuge in you. Preserve me. And he begins with this immediate commitment of himself to God in his request for preservation. This is not a blind leap of faith, however. As we know, the life of David is full of God's providential care and God's intervention in his life and the promises that he has made. And so David has committed himself in that he's taking refuge in God. He's running to him. And it's a wholehearted thing. His relationship, notice the terms that he's using here. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And then in verse 2, I say to the Lord. And if we notice that word Lord is all capital letters, which indicates to us it's a different term, right? Because we'll see later on, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, capital L, lowercase. And so in this, David is really, while he's kind of taken that leap and committed himself, it's not a blind leap. It's not a hope this works out situation. There is a lot of relationship that's built into this. When he says, I say to the Lord, he's using that term Lord. There is that Yahweh term, God's covenantal name that he has given to his people where he has covenanted together with them. And so there's a relationship that exists. But also, he calls him, my Lord Adonai. That term speaks of God's sovereignty, God's mastery, God's ownership. And so when he says to the Lord, you are my Lord, he's saying, Lord, you have a relationship already, covenantally, but personally as well. You are my Lord, my master. David's commitment is so complete because he recognizes that the Lord has relationship with him and that the Lord is preserving him and that the Lord is faithful in keeping his promises. David has all of the history of Israel to look back on how God has been faithful, but also David has his own personal history to see how God has preserved and worked and providentially cared for him. And so when he calls out, preserve me, I'm going to take refuge in you. This commitment comes from all that he knows of God because of what God has revealed himself to be. And because he has that personal relationship. And notice what he says here in verse 2. I have no good apart from you. What a strong statement. I have no good apart from you. That is complete commitment. But this commitment is based on the fact that David has come to realize that apart from God, there is no other good. And that strikes us a little bit funny. We say, well, there's a lot of things that are good in this world, right? There's so many good, wonderful blessings that we enjoy how can David said that he has no good apart from God? 
Doesn't he have family? Doesn't he have riches? Doesn't he have power? Doesn't he have all these things that would be good? How can he say that there is no good apart from you? David is speaking about this, understanding that God, not just that God is good, we all recognize that, but that God alone is good. And that anything apart from good, no matter how wonderful it may seem, when it is divorced from God, when it is separated from God, is in itself a danger. It becomes a temptation and ultimately can become an idol. And isn't that true time and time again in our own lives? I wonder if we look around at this world and at the blessings that God has given and recognize that apart from God, they are worthless. In these things, David is recognizing that without you, God, none of these other things matter. None of these other things will have a lasting impact. And so he looks to God and says, you, I have no good apart from you. What a complete abandonment to God. He's able to completely abandon this because he recognizes that God is good and God is the source of all good. And outside of God, nothing can truly be good for what we call good because too quickly it becomes idolatry in our sinful hearts as we look to them for satisfaction instead of to Christ. Notice also his commitment extends beyond the Lord, to his people. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one in whom is all my delight. Sometimes I look at these things and, and I wonder how true this language is of my own heart day in, day out. Even going through this, asking myself this question, do I have good apart from God? Have I set other things on the throne? Have I looked to other things for satisfaction? What about the people of God? Do I consider them the excellent ones? Do I delight to spend time with them? Or is worship and church and fellowship more of an obligation than it is an enjoyment? Is Sunday the highlight of our week? or the thing we must get through to get to do the things that we want. David is saying that he has taken delight in God, and that delight in God has also taken, extended to his delight in his people. How can we who claim to love and delight in God not love his people? Is that not what Christ gave us as a commandment that we're to love one another and that this was going to be the sign the world looked to, to see that we belong to him, that we have love for one another. If we don't love one another, where is the disconnect? Why do we not experience joy? Why do we not experience peace? Why do we not love to spend time with his people? This commitment involved not only an embracing of God as the only good and his people 
as something to delight in, but it also involved a rejection of everything else that would try and compete. You ever wonder why sometimes we might struggle with really giving everything to God? I mean, think about this. If the Bible is true, and there really is a God who has power to resurrect the dead, who has power to judge sin, and who has power to grant eternal life, if that really is true, why would we ever hesitate to give our lives completely to him? Maybe because in some ways we don't really believe it's true or because we have just become so enamored with the world that has clouded our judgment. Notice in verse 4, David says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. This is always in his view, right? God is my only good. The people of God is my delight. Therefore, the world has nothing for me. What could they possibly appeal to me with? God is everything to me. So whatever you try and give me, whether it be wealth or power or relationship or, or whatever, isn't going to hold any sway over me because God is my only good. And his people are my delight. I don't want to be away from them and away from his word and away from his blessing. And yet so many times we see in churches those who struggle to really commit to really give their life to Christ because the world has such a hold. But listen in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God multiply. Their end is death. There is no satisfaction apart from him. And so when we look to the world, we're only setting ourselves up for failure, for disappointment. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. This is David saying, basically, I will have nothing to do with their false worship, nothing to do with their abandonment of God. God alone is good. Commitment is difficult when we really don't believe what it says. Once we see God alone is good, commitment should almost be a no-brainer. Beyond that, in verse 5 and 6, David's going to talk about his contentment. So we see initially his commitment of himself completely to God. We see the result of that is contentment with God. And isn't it interesting, because... So many times we want to flip this around. God, satisfy all my needs, and then I'll commit to you. And then I'll go all in. Show me all the benefits and the blessings, and then I'll turn to you and give my heart. When it's the other way around, God is asking us to instead respond in faith, and we will find the contentment that we're seeking. So here in verse 5, David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And if we notice, he's talking about portions. He's talking about cups. He's talking about lots. 
He's talking about lines, talking about inheritance. All this has to do, David is thinking back to the time when Israel is dividing up the land. Remember that, that God had brought them out of Egypt and he brought them through the wilderness and finally, under Joshua, they go into the promised land and they're to conquer. And, and each tribe is divided up and given a portion in that promised land. That's what David is referring back to. He's hearkening back in the memory of those that he's writing to. This time when, when they were being blessed and being given particular portions. And he's using that idea saying, hey, you know, like, like the person who, who gets assigned this lot over here, and they're like, oh, wow, I got the cream of the crop lot. I got the one that's right next to the river, that's really that's got the best soil, that's got all these other things, that's got a great view of the mountains. David is hearkening back to that, but notice he is not putting his contentment and not finding his contentment in those things. Because what is his portion and... How can he say that he has gotten these pleasant places and this beautiful inheritance? Because it's the Lord that is his portion. He's saying, my contentment is not in these things, these possessions. Instead, my contentment is because the Lord is all of these things. The Lord is my portion. He has given me all these blessings, and I have a beautiful inheritance. Because he had committed himself completely, contentment has resulted because he has a heart settled on God, which brings that peace because he's not divided loyalties anymore. God's greatest gift to us is himself. But that is not all that God gives. Because beyond himself, God pours out blessing upon blessing. And so David not only speaks of the Lord being his portion and finding contentment in him as he experiences the joy of the, and we're going to see the presence of God and the protection of God, but also because God has given him gifts beyond himself. As if that weren't enough, God in his grace and in his glory goes above and beyond. God's greatest gift is himself, yet he delights to give us overflowing abundance of mercy and grace. He delights to give us his word As we look at this, he talks about, in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. He's already found his portion and his contentment in God. He's finding that all these other inheritances and things that that could be there are, are fulfilled in God. And yet God also gives counsel. And in the night, my heart instructs me, I've set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. He has stability. And... When we think about this, I don't know when we, does some of this language sound a little different than what we would normally think of? I mean, notice what he said. He's talking about delight and beauty and pleasantness and gladness and rejoicing and pleasure. 
I mean, these are, these are words that talk about just a complete enjoyment and a life full of gladness and hope and contentment and peace and, and all these wonderful things. And if it sounds a little foreign, I would ask, why? Should that not be our experience with God? That we delight in him and we delight in his people? That we find joy and that we find gladness? That we find pleasure and beauty in the things of God? I ask you if that has been your experience with God. And if not, why not? Is it that you have lived half-heartedly? Is it that you have not experienced these things because maybe it's just too good to be true? God has given himself, and David finds contentment. He finds pleasantness. He finds beauty. But he also finds counsel and wisdom and discernment. He finds stability in his life. I have set the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. He doesn't have to be fearful. And that leads finally into confidence. He's moved from commitment into contentment, but also he has found confidence. Confidence not only in that God has provided all that he needs and is content here, but also confidence in knowing that all that is to come will ultimately come to him. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. David is glad. He feels security. He feels confidence. Why? Well, first of all, his confidence is in resurrection, in a future event. Verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this is... This hits us differently. But remember how we are to look at this. Because ultimately, David, as we see, is not speaking of himself. Because as Peter pointed out, David died. And his body did see corruption. But David, being a prophet and knowing that a future son of him was promised, who would fulfill this, David can have confidence even now Because the resurrection of Christ was coming. And because Christ would not see corruption, David could have confidence that living this life that he's living now would ultimately meet with eternal life with God. And so he finds himself confident in the resurrection. I ask you, when we think about this, Do we think about the resurrection as actually happening? Like, think about this, right? We we talk about historical events. We talk about things like the Berlin Wall falling or some other great event, maybe, you know, Napoleon being defeated at Waterloo, and we accept those as facts. They don't guide our life. Did the resurrection actually occur? Was there really a Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified 
and three days later came out of a grave. If that is the case, if that is true, then that changes every aspect of our life. And it should cause us not to have to live in fear or in doubt or without confidence or without contentment because it really did happen and it really does matter for us. It mattered for David. David, looking forward and seeing this, sees that Christ will die and he will rise again. And because of that resurrection, David too will be resurrected. David too will experience life. And so he doesn't have to fear this death, even though certainly problems arose in his life and problems arose arise in our life, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Jesus said in John 14, Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And Jesus, when he talks about his resurrection, ties it to the eventual resurrection and the hope of the disciples. So that even though in fear as they fled at the cross, in confidence they preach after the resurrection. Because what can man do to them? They serve a risen Savior, a Savior who has overcome death and the grave. And therefore, death has no fear for them has no worry. They don't have to wonder if this life will be worth it because Christ is resurrected. It is true. And he will bring to pass all of his promises. This resurrection is the central truth of Christianity. And so we said, this whole psalm is really written in the shadow of that prophetic statement of how Christ ultimately fulfills this. So while David is saying that all of this is happening, that he's committed himself and that he's content and that he has confidence, we see that Christ had that same confidence. Christ spoke time and time again of his own death, but not with fear. When he spoke of his resurrection, he was reassuring his disciples that, yes, I will die, but that will not be the end. And while he didn't see it while he was alive, when he, or before he died, they saw it when he returned. And so here we have this beautiful story, this beautiful prophecy that speaks of Christ, and that resurrection is what drives us today. It is the the fulcrum of what our faith rests on. Without the resurrection, we are of all men most to be pitied because we couldn't have any confidence. But because the resurrection is true, because Christ has overcome sin and death and the grave, 
then we can find a life that we can commit to completely and that we can find contentment and peace in this life and that ultimately we can find a future hope that drives us. Titus speaks about the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age How can we do all that? Why do we do all that? Because we know we are waiting for a blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The truth of the resurrection is what can give us confidence to live a life of denial. To live a life of rejecting this world and of clinging to Christ. Because... We know that all that he has said is true. And all that he has promised will come to pass. Do you find your joy and pleasure in God? Or do you find life difficult, constantly split between both sides? Drawn to the world, drawn to its distractions. When was the last time you focused on the resurrection of Christ and what that means for you? As you reflect on that, don't the things that the world offers seem so small? Doesn't the hope that we have for the future make everything here pale in comparison? Doesn't that then spur us on to live for God in this present age because we know what is to come? Because we know that death is not the end? That we know that in the future there are pleasures forevermore? And how sad if we trade those for some cheap, quick, passing Enjoyments in this world. Peter concludes his sermon in Acts. After hearing this be applied and seeing that David was in fact talking of Christ. Who has not been abandoned but instead has been resurrected. They are struck in their heart. And they wonder, what are we to do? Acts 2, 36. Peter says to them, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And the proof that he was the Lord and Christ was this resurrection. And their response is, well, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? They're concerned because all of a sudden they realize that the resurrection did happen. And they stand guilty and they stand apart from God. What do we do? This life now is is meaningless. We have no hope. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
This is the same response we are called to. If you're here and you are not a Christian, let me assure you the resurrection is real. And it perfectly identifies without any excuses that Christ is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And apart from him, there is no salvation. So why would you continue in sin? Why would you continue in the emptiness of this world when delight and pleasure and joy and ultimately peace with God is available to you through Christ? Your response ought to be the same as these. Repent. Turn from that emptiness. Turn from your sin And give your life to Christ. Commit yourself to Him. You will find contentment. You will find confidence. You will find joy. You will find forgiveness. You will find eternal life. That is His promise. Christian, have you allowed the cares of this life to distract you? Have you taken your eyes off all that God has given us and all that the resurrection really means for us. Have you allowed doubt to creep in? Have you looked and said, maybe all of this is not worth it, and you've begun to lose heart? Understand this. Christ has said, because I live, you also will live. And so commit yourself to him completely. Follow him. Seek your only good in him. Surrendering all other competing idols. And know that you will find joy, peace, and everlasting pleasure forevermore. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on this, we thank you so much for the clear evidence you gave us of the resurrection, of who Christ is. We thank you, Christ, for your love and for your kindness to us, that while we were yet sinners, you died. We thank you that you did not remain in the grave, but just as you foretold, you rose again. And that that resurrection proves for all time who you really are. And that you have the power to redeem. And that because you live, we too can live. So Lord, I pray this morning, if there be anybody here who has never come to you and put their faith in you, given their life to you, that you would work in their hearts to convict them their sin, and to cause them to see the truth and to repent. Lord, I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters here this morning who maybe have struggled with discontent, struggled with commitment, struggled with belief. I pray that you would strengthen us as we reflect on your resurrection. 
and that we would look forward with hope to all that you have for us. God, you have given us so much in giving us your son, more than we could ever ask, but you have piled blessing upon blessing, giving us all that we need in this life. But Lord, you are not done with that. You don't stop at blessing in this life, but Lord, you continue to pour out your blessing on us for eternity for the sake of Christ. So Lord, we thank you. We cannot express all that you have given to us and the gratitude that we owe you. But Lord, we thank you so much for all that you have provided for us. And we pray that that future hope that we have of eternity with you would drive us to live godly and chaste lives in this world, to be evangelistic, share the gospel with our neighbors and our relatives, and that you would be glorified as we live for you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.